coming up on Garden Talk. Reputable companies will test for terpenes. You should also be looking, as a side note, for heavy metals, microbiology, and aflatoxins, and making sure there's no pesticides and all those boxes are checked. A lot of the background of certain growers is not botanically based, so they're using these genes of cultivar strain and uh, variety or hybrid when really they're probably dealing with simply a unregistered trademark name. You're probably getting less than 10% of the actual plant production standpoint. And they'll be bright, they'll burn your retinas out, but they will not necessarily be as advantageous to your plants as you may think. No matter what plant you're growing, what environment, that science-based approach is really what allows anyone to improve their gardening skills or just better understand the plant that they are tending to. What's up, everybody? If you that don't know me, my name is Chris, a.k.a. Mr. Grow It, and you're tuned into the Garden Talk podcast. This is episode number 68. In this episode, I interview Matt from Tobacco University. He has been gardening for 22 years, and he takes a more science-backed approach to gardening. He talks about a variety of topics in this episode and explains the science in a more beginner-friendly manner. Thanks to all of you who support this podcast through Patreon. If you'd like to support, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash mrgrowit. Before we get into it, I want to acknowledge that one of my goals for this podcast is to bring zero cost for information about gardening, all plants, to the general public. That being said, I'd like to thank the sponsors of today's episode who helped make that goal possible. Thanks to AC Infinity for sponsoring this podcast. They sent me over their grow tent, which has a canvas density of 2000D, making them the thickest grow tent on the market today. It has an aluminum plate that mounts your controller to the grow tent with a lightproof pass-through for cable routing. The frame has 50% thicker steel poles and carries two times more weight than the standard grow tents. Coupon code MrGrowIt will get you a discount on their products, and I'll leave a link to their website down in the description section below. And we are back. Welcome to the Garden Talk podcast. Today I am joined with Matt from Tobacco University. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I think a lot of people know you. I actually had a large handful of people on my channel comment on my videos requesting you to come onto this podcast. And I think a lot of people really admire your science-backed approach to horticulture, right? So we're talking about really all plants, gardening, um, indoors, outdoors. You really go over a lot of that in your videos on your YouTube channel. And uh, very detailed, very straight to the point, which I think I've seen some comments in those videos saying that people love the straight to the point topic videos. Uh, you do a really great job all around. So I'm really excited to, to have a conversation today and, and ask you some questions that are really backed by science. Always great to hear and help support that because that's the one thing that does hold true no matter what plant you're growing, what environment. Uh, that science-based approach is really what allows anyone to improve their gardening skills or just better understand the plant that they are tending to. But before we get too deep into things, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into gardening? So I've been growing for the last uh, at least 22 years or so. Uh, my claim to fame is giant pumpkins. So that's what kind of got me started and interesting in uh, plant growing in general, because with a giant pumpkin, literally you can kind of watch it grow. Um, they will put on, on average, about a pound every hour. So once you kind of see that happen from a plant standpoint, you always just inquisitive of like, well, why is that happening and how can I improve that? I can get more pounds per hour or, or a longer duration for that. And of course, that led me into the science, which I uh, also like to kind of read up on and look at and making those connections, the photosynthetic process, the water, uh, humidity, nutrients, how all that plays into it. The giant pumpkin is kind of in your face and uh, allows you a great understanding of how your influences can impact the uh, production of the plant. Yeah, it was the other day you actually sent me a picture of one of the plants that you had grown, one of the pumpkins, and a uh, massive, massive pumpkin. I mean, what was it on, like a pallet or something like that? And was it like on a scale at the time or something? Do you always have it on a scale? Yeah, we've got to transport them by pallet. And um, back about, mm, about seven, eight years ago, I purchased a five foot by eight foot trailer to haul the pumpkins around. And now I had to buy a new one because that one won't fit the pumpkins anymore. So I've got the legalist, wise trailer you can kind of get. Um, and that's kind of just part of the hobby. And as I say, that's usually 
a good problem uh, to have in the sense that when you're out growing the containers for transportation, always turns a lot of heads on the highway and always get the thumbs up around the fall time. So just a nice way on a good year to end the season. That's incredible. Yeah. And I know a lot of things with pumpkins kind of relates to medicinal varieties that a lot of these growers do grow Mm -hmm. that are tuning into this content. I want to first talk about the naming convention in plants. A lot of people are using the word strain when really that's actually incorrect. Can you talk to us about properly naming plants from strain to cultivar versus variety versus land race, so on and so forth? So there's a whole official uh, plant taxonomy and nomenclature is kind of the main uh, term there. And it's like, well, how do we break that down? And a lot of these terms get tossed around and because they heard it from someone that they may regard, they just keep tossing that same term uh, around. And I think the one that you mentioned in particular strain, and uh, that is used uh, quite a bit. And that really comes more from the microbiology bacteria um, kind of naming a nomenclature system, but has been applied to all sorts of plants. And really that is uh, kind of an improper term. Really, the in, it's called the International Code for Nomenclature for Cultivated Plants is kind of one of the gold standards. Uh, it's abbreviated the ICNCP. They are the ones that really set the rules for naming any plant, any new plant. Um, and a lot of those rules um, can get lengthy, can get very uh, laborious as, you know, how you write things or what should be italicized in single quotes and all of that. But that's really what sets um, the standards. And some growers of plants have kind of disregarded um, some of those. So they use the terms like strain and cultivar and variety all interchangeably when really they're not. So a cultivar, a true cultivar, it really means a cultivated plant, one that's been kind of modified um, by humans, selected for, cultivated by humans. Uh, Most are developed by kind of like plant breeders and borderline on probably what we may think of as hybrids. A variety is basically a variation within a plant species that develops naturally in the environment and really doesn't require human intervention by the definition of the term. So a lot of people say, I've got this new variety. Well really kind of develops by its own kind of relative mutations, um, I guess is the best way to put it. And how you write these, there's all these sort of uh, established rules, many disregard them, of the genus, the specific epithet, the cultivar, common names, and exactly what gets italicized and in single quotes um, there. What is interesting is that um, these hybrids that we speak of, natural or man-made, are really what a lot of people um, are growing and they're human generated um, in a lot of cases. So a lot of times those human generated seeds, if you grow a hybrid, you plant that seed um, and it gets a beautiful plant. You take a seed from that plant and grow it and you get something that like doesn't quite look like the original. Um, particularly, uh, it happens a lot with squash. Put it in the compost pile, throw these rotted squash in the compost pile. The next year, you're like, I got my free squash. And lo and behold, they don't turn out anything like the original. So that kind of gives you an idea of a true, quote, hybrid. Um, a lot of times we hear the term land race um, used quite a bit. And land race is really that people might be more familiar with. I think the term should be used as heirloom. And an heirloom is just one of those open pollinated varieties that's been passed down from generation to generation and is very stable um, in that sense. And people will argue, oh, it's got to be 50 years stable, 150 years stable, 100 years stable. Um, it's just there's some variation there, but something that is probably going to come true from type. So land race, heirlooms, those also are um, interchangeable um, terms. With some of the plants we're seeing out there with all these crazy new names and, you know, they get, you know, very well publicized. I think what we're getting to is really something in the borderlines of trade names or um, trademark names or trade designations would be a great way to kind of context this. And really, for the most part, there is a registering process that you'd have to go through. But we're doing a lot of unregistered trademarks. And these are names that you say and people immediately make that connection with. They understand that. Oh, yeah, that's, you know, it was grown here and then passed from here and went from the West Coast to the East Coast or from the South to the North. But really, by botanical definition, uh, unregistered trademarks is what we're referring to a lot of plant names by. But a lot of the background of certain growers is not botanically based. So they're using these in terms of cultivar strain and uh, variety or hybrid when really they're probably dealing with simply a unregistered trademark name. That's interesting. Yeah, I know I've improperly used the word strain for many, many years and then I was corrected. 
uh, cultivars is really kind of what I've what I've been growing. So I've been trying to say that instead of strain, and I get a, get some pushback. You know, people are like, "Hey, it's strain. What are you talking about?" And try to educate, and people get frustrated because they've been doing it for so long, and now they they need to change their ways and, and so on and so forth. But uh, thanks for clarifying that one. Let's dive into lighting. You have a HPS versus LED video on your channel. It's, it goes over a very good study. Can you talk to us about that study, HPS versus LED? So this is probably the two um, hot topics when it comes to lights. The old uh, HPS lighting and then the new kid on the block, the LED lighting. And which one's better? And you've got people kind of in both camps that are old school HPS and then people are dumping all the HPS and going straight um, to LED. And it's not quite as clear cut as uh, many growers kind of associate. HPS technology, um, as we speak today, is very good. It's basically 20 plus years refinement of technology. Um, so there are still some benefits um, to the HPS uh, technology. LED technology is in its infancy. It's improving year to year. It's amazing when you look back five years, how um, rudimentary it was to kind of what we see uh, nowadays. Having said that, if a manufacturer is producing LED lights, it's not just an LED to HPS comparison. There are variable forms um, of LED lights. So, and they're all not necessarily treated equally, shall we say. So, and it's, it's not LEDs or nothing. There is, needs to be an understanding from a grower to make that educated decision on which one is the best for them. In the study that um, I found and posted on my channel, and it is, if you type in just um, LED and HPS lights and the Baku University should come up for you. Uh, and it does, it, it tells you what HPS they're using. It's a thousand watt um, double-ended HPS, which is pretty much the gold standard for commercial production. And then they had three LED lights. Of those three, they determined based on their own test in the study that only one kind of rose to the top and was worthy of uh, comparison. Uh, they ended up going with the Fluence um, Spider X Plus LED light. Uh, they had two others that they simply determined were not near of comparison. So that just shows you right there that here's three LED lights and only one made it uh, to be competitive to the HPS light. Uh, and when they were looking at comparing, you know, they're looking at uh, really not so much the photosynthetic process, but what are the plants' uh, secondary components? What are they producing and comparing uh, HPS to LED lights. Now, LED lights did come up uh, a little bit higher um, in their comparison, which a lot of growers point to and say, that's why I need to be using LED lights. They're producing so much better than HPS lights. And I just kind of, as a caveat, just remind you that there were two LED lights that were tossed out of the study. And that's probably because they were not um, producing anywhere near um, as competitive as the HPS lights. So that's really what needs to be taken into consideration um, by growers. A lot of growers are still producing very high quality end products uh, grown completely under uh, flowering time to end to harvest with HPS lights. So it's not like you need to throw them all out. They're all the old technology. They're all horrible. Um, LED lights are, of course, the new and upcoming idea, but not necessarily um, a direct kind of throw the old one out, go all with the new one and go all in on that. Growers really need to be a little bit more uh, choosy with their LED lights and really do their research, looking at the spectrums that they produce. And kind of a little bit of a saying is good LED lights right now are not cheap and cheap LED lights are not good. So again, what is cheap? What is, you know, you're looking at LED lights costing well over $1,000 uh, for one light when you can buy them for $100. I mean, I can buy 10 to one. Well, you're probably getting less than 10% of the actual um, plant production standpoint. And they'll be bright, they'll burn your retinas out, but they um, will not necessarily be um, as advantageous to your plants as you may think. And there are other forms of lighting out there, right? I think one of the ones that people are still using very frequently is CMH grow lights. Can you talk mm -hmm. to us a little bit about them? So the CMH, and that stands for uh, ceramic metal halide um, lights. Uh, I think growers need to really start considering them a little bit more. They are gaining popularity. Uh, for those that may have been growing a couple of years ago, metal halides were the old school version. This is the improvement of uh, the metal halides, MH lights. What's great about the CMHs is if anyone's growing currently with fluorescence, particularly for the seedling clone early stages, 
um, CMH lights are a much easier replacement for that. You don't have to worry about, you know, 10 bulbs, eight bulbs, one bulb will cover that same area. Um, so that's great. Also, the CMH is the ceramic of the CMH really adds a very long uh, bulb life there. Now, the downfall of CMHs is that they're not really great for the flowering phase uh, as a standalone light. Um, however, they are being used to kind of intermix with some spectrums. Um, they do produce a fair amount of heat, so they are not, you know, completely, you know, no heat, but no real light is. And as always, because of the metal halide in the bulb disposal, while well, a long time away, is of course worth um, consideration as far as what you're actually going to be doing uh, with that. Now, having said that, we're looking at the, um, sometimes they're called LEC lights, just they're light emitting ceramics. Uh, I think CMH is going to be the term that's going to carry on, but sometimes they use LECs and CMH interchangeably, and they are pretty much talking about the um, same thing on there. Something else that's great about CMHs for anyone that has used them is they have a great, uh, what's called a CRI, which is a color rendering index. So this is something we talk about LEDs as well. The um, CRIs for most CMHs are up there in the you know, high 90s-ish area, which basically means the colors that you're going to look at on your plants under that light are going to be very true to type versus HPS lights are going to have very much that heavy yellowish, orangish kind of tones to it. And that goes back to the LED lights. When I'm talking about LED lights, I'm talking about full spectrum LED lights. A lot of people think when they see LED lights, think of those purple high par lights and those really wreak havoc on the eyes. You need to wear special glasses. It makes it very difficult to be able to go through and view your plants for disease diagnosis, for scouting purposes. And that is one great advantage of um, the CMH lights is they have that high um, CRI index. Now they do come very much in a 315 and a 630 watt. So a lot of growers might be thinking, well, I have an HPS light at 1,000. Well, why am I even going to consider these lights? And um, based on PAR readings, they do produce very high on PAR. So, for example, a 315 uh, wattage CMH light, that's going to cover about a 3x3 flower area or a 4x4 veg area. And a 630 is going to be about a 5x5 uh, veg or a 4x4 um, flower there. So don't let those smaller wattages worry about the small footprint. They still can cover quite a bit of square footage area. In addition to CMHs, there's a lot of bulb options um, as well. Most are lasting 20,000 hours and still producing over 80% of their initial brilliance, which is great. I'm personally a fan of the Philips uh, Master Color one, but there's a lot more coming on scene to be a little bit more um, competitive. You're getting a lot that are producing, uh, particularly spectrums, getting into more of a flowering light, more of a daytime light. Um, so it's great. You just pop a bulb out, pop a new one right in, um, and it really allows you to keep the same fixtures, but also have the ability, and even in flower, to produce some of that UV light and some of that far red spectrums that are very important for their full um, secondary compounds productions of plants. They allow um, the production of that, which is why they're being interested to mixed in with some HPS lights or some LED lights um, used throughout the entire growth cycle, but use kind of alone or singly in the veg cycle and then using as that spectrum mix because they're able to produce some of those wavelengths that other uh, brands of other um, classifications of lights tend to struggle with. I know there are some studies out there with people who are using lighting and seeing its effects on trichomes. So for the plants that have trichomes, mm -hmm. cannabinoids, terpenes, they're taking a look at what lighting can do for that. Cannabinoids, they get a bunch of acknowledgement. Uh, a lot of people talk about them. Mm -hmm. Terpenes, not as many people really talk about them or really focus on them or really test them as much as they do cannabinoids. So I want to get a little bit deeper into terpenes. Can you talk to us about terpenes? Sure. You know, what are they? Maybe some of the common ones, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So what are, you know, terpenes in the basic sense? Uh, some people call them terpenoids as well. I tend to use terpenes. Most people I find use terpenes. It's the largest, most diverse group of naturally occurring compounds. So it is a very broad category. And we're covering you know, all spectrums here. Uh, they are naturally occurring. Uh, they are chemical compounds, but everyone freaks out when they heard the term chemical, but they are naturally derived um, in the plant, naturally found in plants. 
and couples and some animals as well. They're, what they're really responsible for is the aromas, the flavors, uh, sometimes even colorations associated with various types of irrigation um, in plants can be based on uh, terpenes for the plants. And the reason why plants uh, produce them is they're the plant's response to like harsh weather conditions that could be stresses such as high light or temperature fluctuations, uh, and also predators, uh, herbivores in particular. Um, for what they do in humans, you know, how they impact when humans consume them is different ways. We're still currently doing research on that uh, because there are, quote, just so many of them. So how do we kind of go about classifying them? And this might get a little bit more into the um, science of things, but they're kind of initially classified from a scientific standpoint. It's kind of like the number of carbon atoms. So how big is the molecule? You know, a monoterpene, and a lot of people think monoterpene, they think, oh, it's got one little carbon atom when really those monoterpenes really have uh, 10 carbon atoms, and then diterpenes have 20, and triterpenes have 30. So it's kind of like, think about it as little packages of uh, 10 carbon atoms. And those monoterpenes, a lot of times for medicinal purposes, you're looking at fragrances or um, repellent type properties. Your diterpenes can get into some advantages um, humans for what we might use them for medicinally, such as anti-inflammatory um, issues or cardiovascular diseases. There's been some indications that classification can help. And then triterpenes is like wound healing can help increase uh, circulation, help uh, speed up the recovery time of a potential wound or laceration of the dermal layer. So, um, and because this is so diverse, you can't just say, oh, this terpene has to do this and only this. There's going to be a lot of also interactions um, with these. Um, you know, how do they get about these interactions? Why do we need these studies? Well, they do impact the brain, the neurological um, pathway. So some can have potential psychoactive effects, uh, but they really don't produce like intoxicating effects. Like some uh, cannabinoids have a little bit stronger binding uh, to receptors um, there. So early research is being done on these uh, because they are produced in a wide variety of plants. And what's warranting the greater uh, investigation is that they potentially for um, some help with mental health or anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder. There is some early research indicating that hey, it might be worth studying these or it might be worth going on this classification because there could really be something um, there. Now, terpenes is for, you know, tossing out the general term, you know, the, the, the tea tree um, is an example that contains active ingredients to create potential infections um, there. Uh, citrus fruits, you know, that's a, a very commonly associated, you know, aroma um, or smell um, that you're getting. And some of those, like, for example, um, lemongrass, um, you know, has that nice lemony uh, kind of uh, odor to it. And that is actually, while it smells, you know, nice and lemony to us, it's actually the plant's response to repelling insects from feeding on it. Um, some have certain antimicrobial properties, you know, antifungal properties. So there is a lot there within the vast amount of terpenes. And if you, you know, search up any, you know, terpene uh, poster or profile or list, you know, uh, lemonine, just for one that I mentioned there, one of the most common found terpenes, um, distinct citrus notes there, uh, potentially, you know, anti-anxiety properties, but the plant's producing it to like repel insects, uh, per se. So there is a reason why these plants are producing these. It's not, quote, for our benefit, we're just simply taking uh, advantage of that. Another common one, like the pinenes, you know, it comes from the coniferous forest. You ever walked into a pine tree, the coniferous, um, you know, tree aroma, that is kind of that key scent there. And those may have antidepressant uh, properties um, as well, as well as a host of others there. And really comes down to, you know, doing that science there, doing that research, doing those studies um, and that's really what's going to be important uh, taking these forward. From a consumer standpoint, if you're looking at purchasing products uh, for terpenes, as you mentioned, the uh, cannabinoids get all the, quote, attention. But if you're purchasing anything uh, plant-based, you should be looking for a COA, Certificate of Authenticity, or a label. And a lot of times that will have lab test results that people may just flip over, but um, they will often, or reputable companies, will test for terpenes should also be looking, as a side note, for heavy metals, microbiology, and aflatoxins, and making sure there's no pesticides and all those boxes are checked. But oftentimes there will be uh, terpenes as well tested for. And that leads us to like terpene profiles, where you're looking at, okay, well, produce this high of one. Well, how may that interact with another terpene? Um, how is that interacting with this profile of like, it's not just one terpene, 
might be a mixture there. It might be some advantages of some synergistic effects, which is really a great um, aspect where I always say one plus one doesn't always equal two. One plus one could have an additive effect and it could equal three, where you're getting uh, additional benefits that if you had consumed just one terpene and then just another terpene, well, adding them together causes this synergistic effect, kind of like a, a CalMag. A lot of times you don't just find calcium products or magnesium products, you find a calcium-magnesium product. And that's another example of a nutrient having a synergistic effect to increase its uptake um, in the plant. For those concerning certain, certain uh, terpenes, uh, heat, uh, they are unstable. That's not unstable to mean that they're, you know, bad. Unstable to mean in really high heat situations, the molecules, these carbon molecules, basically fall apart. So if you're looking at adding a lot of heat um, to your method of consumption, that could really um, negatively impact the amount of terpenes you might be getting. You want to keep the heat on the lower end so you're not basically vaporizing or dissociating those valuable terpene molecules. And as everyone should be keeping, you know, for those who are growing, but also um, using a log, you know, just a little diary. It may sound a little old school, may sound a little uh, basic, but just having an idea of, you know, what profile did you have? What effects did you feel? Did you like it, not like it? And then you can start to find some commonalities and uh, kind of go that route as far as what you might be investigating uh, going further to help make something that matches your condition the best way possible. You mentioned a key point there that I think a lot of people aren't aware of is that the temperature, as it's increasing, these terpenes are volatizing, right? They're, they're disappearing. So a lot of people walk into the garden, they'll open up their grow tent, for example, and they'll get a huge whiff and they're like, ah, smells wonderful. <laughs> Everything's going great. Is it really going great? Or are you losing all those terpenes because your heat is too high, right? So um, like you mentioned, lowering the temperature, uh, you know, certainly towards the end of flowering can help conserve mm -hmm. some of those terpenes. From my understanding, different terpenes will volatize at different temperatures. I wish there was a chart. I've been looking online. I wish there was a chart where it broke down the terpene and then what temperature it volatizes at. I'm not sure if you're aware of that or not, but if you can find one and send it to me, I would love it uh, because I think that's beneficial. I think the general knowledge is to keep it under, I think it was like under 75 degrees Fahrenheit in order, and you can, you're conserving most of the terpenes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that 80 degrees from everything I've seen, 80 degrees Fahrenheit, I should say, is kind of the friction point where you start going above 80 degrees and it's kind of exponential decay at that point. Um, just more and more uh, breaking it down for those that, um, you know, might be, you know, hearing this and going, well, well, that's much lower. Um, you might want to try that lower temperature um, and you might be surprised at whatever you, you know, the same batch, you got one effect Well, you lower that temperature and you're like, wow, that's what I've been missing. That's what I've been looking for when really it's been there the whole time. You're just self-degrading it um, with um, excessive heat. So just a good kind of uh, word of caution there that, you know, when you're dealing with chemicals, uh, they do dissociate, they do fall apart. Um, so there is a, you know, a method of, you know, regulating that so you're not just vaporizing them into oblivion. I used to run the low 80 degree Fahrenheit all the way through, all the way up until harvest. And then once I started dropping it, in late flowering to the high 70s Fahrenheit, I definitely, I can clearly notice a difference. So mm -hmm. um, definitely for those folks that are tuning in that are maybe running it at low 80s all the way up until harvest, maybe try the next round in the high 70s and see if there's mm -hmm. a difference there. Uh, I, I certainly had noticed one myself. Now, is there anything that can be done in guard while gardening in order to increase terpenes uh, or cannabinoids? So pretty much, um, you know, a lot of growers want the, the quote, the quick fix and how can I maximize this? And of course, a lot of it is genetic. So if the genes aren't there. I don't care what you do, the plant, it's not going to really, you know, help anything. But kind of going back to the previous point that we had mentioned is, you know, the lighting. Uh, there is some great information coming out that, you know, the importance of lighting is um, important for those plants to be able to maximize their, you know, final output of, of you know, total products there. And this is looking at not to say just a bright light, um, but the, you know, intensity of that light does play into it as well. And the spectrum um, of light also plays into it. So, you know, I just want to buy the, the, the miracle light that's going to, you know, solve all of your problems there. 
Um, that's where we're getting into more experimentation with different, you know, um, light levels and spectrums of light. So I mentioned PAR earlier, which is referring to that mainly that photosynthetically active kind of portion of the light spectrum. But as we're, you know, doing more research and looking at more things, there's, you know, wavelengths beyond that, just that simple, that PAR um, reading uh, there. And sometimes or what we're finding is potentially intensifying um, wavelengths outside of just that PAR might be advantageous there. Those ultraviolet light, which is kind of under that 400 nanometers or so, or that far red, pretty much talking above that 700 or so nanometers. And when we think of UV light, we think of purple um, coloration, and that, that is true. Um, that's touching the um, UV light spectrum, but there are important wavelengths that are basically out of the visible spectrum. We simply can't see it. What's interesting is some bees can actually see those wavelengths and uh, flowers can look very different under a UV light to a bee than we can. Uh, but there are wavelengths that plants are able to receive. There are receptors for these um, wavelengths outside of that range. That doesn't mean you go down to, you know, 200 nanometers or up to 1000 nanometers and your cell phone or radio waves are going to do something to a plant. Not necessarily, but really that 300 to 800 or so nanometers when PARs only 400 to 700 um, do play a role. And, you know, what they're doing is there are some uh, CMH lights uh, that uh, are basically a high UV light spectrum. And they are recommending you only use those lights in your last 10 days or seven to 10 days of flower. And it's what it's doing. That UV light is actually stressing the plant out. Now, the reason why you only want to use it for the last week or so is it's stressing the plant out in the sense it's not going to grow a whole lot more, but it's going to signal the plant to produce those terpenes to produce those cannabinoids, to produce those secondary components um, quite quite a bit as a stress response. Because as I mentioned, you know, the lemon scent, you know, in lemongrass, that's really to repel insects. So you're kind of forcing the plant, uh, stressing out a little bit to get it to produce the necessary compounds that you're looking uh, to produce there. And I said that UV and far red light probably are the ones that are the uh, ones to focus on. Now, a lot of, or some companies are coming out with lights with all these dials on it, and they say, you can choose your spectrum. Um, you can choose whatever you want. High increase the reds and the blues and everything in between, and that's great. Um, but I think this is a case where the lighting technology, the physical products, are getting ahead of the plant science. So knowing the best lighting spectrum recipe, some growers may call it, I would argue and say it's still being researched. I think we're seeing definitely UV light is showing an indication, but how much UV light, what spectrums of UV light, and for what duration, I would argue um, is still not well um, understood. Um, definitely, it does have an impact as well as far red, but what is the correct recipe? I really can't tell you. Um, I would suggest experimenting, and there has continued to be experiments going on with that. Um, so it's great that you, some, in some cases you can adjust everything, but I don't think we're at that stage yet where at this many days in, you're going to turn this dial. And at this many days in, you're going to flip this other dial. Um, I don't think we're at that level yet, despite the technology uh, being there. And it might make you feel good. Well, I can change all these spectrums. But as far as increasing in what's the best spectrum, I would say still be debated. And science really is still looking at um, that, to be honest. Heard about precision stress as far as triggering the terpenes and cannabinoids, and you already mentioned with lighting with it. I've also heard about uh, these baby falls, but everything from adding more wind to parts of the plant in order to uh, stress it out that way. I've heard about uh, depriving it of nutrients or, or even overfeeding nutrients in order to stress the plant that way. Is that true? Are those precision stress techniques Will that actually trigger more terpenes and cannabinoids? Are there any things that people should avoid, any techniques that they should avoid? So there's many ways to stress a plant. We're, we're looking at stressing a plant to produce the compounds we want. So, for example, if you, let's just say, overwater the plant, that's going to definitely stress it. Is it going to stress it to the point that it produces more, you know, terpenes, cannabinoids? Mm, probably not. Um, it's going to stress it in ways that are going to cause it to kind of like go into shutdown mode um, and not stress it in a, quote, good way. Um, you're right with wind. Uh, that can be utilized um, to, you know, stress plants, but probably not increase those uh, terpene uh, production. So with that lighting, the way, why is that, why is lighting, you know, a main focus there? Well, what it's doing is that UV light, a lot of the times the parts of the plant we want are the ones exposed to lighting. 
So when they're exposed to that harsh UV light, they're going to produce those secondary compounds. And those secondary compounds they produce in response to that are typically in those flavonoids, terpenes, cannabinoids um, kind of classification. If you look at some early plants, uh, poison ivy is a major one. Everyone always says, um, you know, three leaves, shiny, three shiny leaves of green stay away. Um, well, early on when poison ivy first comes out, it actually has very heavy red tones to it. And that's the way of those very early leaves self-protecting themselves from the harsh UV light. You might see that with uh, blueberries, for example, or certain fruits that change color or peppers or something you wait for a different color to turn. Well, that's kind of that same compounds in there that are changing coloration. And a lot of times it does come with, you know, lighting um, and you're looking at producing those phyto compounds. And a lot of those, if you're making a very broad stroke, those cannabinoids, those terpenes are basically kind of those phyto, which is light kind of base components there uh, as a result. Changing the lighting is really what's going to change that. Other things, as, as you mentioned there, well, you know, different pruning methods can also stress the plants. But are those going to stress the plants in a way to produce more cannabinoids, more terpenes? Probably not um, to the greatest degree we would want. Uh, some poinsettia growers, some greenhouse growers will actually, to keep their plants shorter, to keep their plants stunted but not in a negative way, they actually take what looks like, I don't know the way to word this, kind of like a, if you go to a car wash, you know, they've got the big, you know, the kind of the brushes that you kind of drive through there. Well, they actually take fine pieces of plastic and they go over the plants like a big giant brush down the whole row and they just touch the plants. They tickle the plants, so to speak. And that sense there, because they're in a controlled environment, not a lot of wind, gives it the sense of them being outside and helps reduce that internode spacing. So that is a stress to the plant. But is that sure internet spacing going to produce more terpenes? Probably not. So just a little comparison there of stressing the plant is one thing, stressing to produce uh, terpenes, cannabinoids, a little specific stress there. What you mentioned about keeping the plant short brings us into our next subject, which is plant growth regulators. A lot of people are using plant growth regulators to alter the way the plants are grown. Some are naturally occurring, right? Can you talk to us about what you know about them and how they impact plant growth? Sure. So a lot of the times when we're selling an end product, uh, there a lot of times there are tests for uh, PGRs, plant growth regulators, and pretty much across the board, not really permitted to be used and often tested for. So, but there can be a substantial impact on the plant morphology, meaning how the plant actually looks, which is why they're kind of being used there. Um, they can help increase density um, of plant, and it can be a very night and day difference um, there. Um, and that can really improve the return on investment, which is a lot why a lot of growers start to seek, seek them out, for example. As you mentioned, there are naturally occurring uh, plant hormones. So let's go with regulators. We'll broaden that to hormones there. And everyone's taken like a regular, um, you know, high school biology or botany class, uh, auxins, gibberellins, um, uh, abscisic acid, ethylene, all of these uh, should come to mind. So probably the one most growers are utilizing and is often allowed um, in pretty much all production, again, depending on different regulations, but auxin as a um, rooting compound. Now it does other things, but um, is found in a lot of rooting compounds. So if you're making clones or cuttings, um, or air grafting or something like that, auxin might be something you might want to be utilizing uh, to help increase that root formation. Gibberellins is kind of help the plants stretch. So if you want to keep a plant, you know, more dwarf, tighter internode spacing, well, there's, you know, you want to kind of like block or reduce the gibberellins. You don't want it to like stretch out like crazy. Abscisic acid is involved a lot in usually seed dormancy, keeping the seed dormant. So you don't want an apple tree to fall, an apple to fall off the tree and immediately grow into another apple tree. There's abscisic acid in there to delay it from germinating because the offspring don't want to directly compete with the mother or stock plant there. And ethylene, most um, people, not even growers, are probably most familiar with. That's usually the ripening hormones. So if you ever get that hard piece of fruit and you throw it in a paper bag and you wait a couple days and you pull it out and it's nice and uh, soft, well, what you've done is you've basically condensed the ethylene, speeding up that ripening uh, process. Originally, it was a big problem because ethylene is actually in very small amounts, a product of internal combustion engines, very small amounts. But they were shipping tomatoes from the West Coast to the East Coast and having an issue with them speed ripening. It was literally the slight exhaust from the truck uh, causing those tomatoes to ripen much, much quicker than they originally anticipated. So uh, something else to just uh, consider there when we're talking about these impacts of these uh, plant hormones. 
Now, can they be dangerous? You know, why are they testing for these? Well, it's often still debated on how dangerous or which ones are maybe more dangerous than others. But from a medical perspective, it's really best to avoid them, uh, particularly the synthetic ones, whenever possible, simply because we don't know, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, there is some indication that there could be some dangerous ones. There is um, the European Union, as well as the United States, do have some regulations there as far as what might be approved, what not might be approved, which ones they might be scanning for, um, not approved for certain use in food products in the United States versus Canada and other regions. So there is some early indications that we would definitely want to proceed with caution uh, when using uh, PGRs and know where your end product might be going. If it is regulated, if it is tested for, try to find other means uh, for, you know, obtaining the same plant morphology without utilizing those particular compounds. You mentioned ethylene gas. I want to bring that. I want to bring it back to that real quick. Some of these medicinal varieties that folks grow, some may have. They might be on a timeline, and it may not be finished at at that time. Now, I've heard a little trick is to place that plant next to tomato plants, for example, which are releasing ethylene gas to help with the ripening process. Uh, and, you know, you also hear about uh, don't put your tomatoes next to your bananas because that'll, <laughs> yep. you know, impact the the bananas. It'll it'll turn them a lot quicker. Uh, is it true what I mentioned before about the putting the tomatoes next to the medicinal varieties and to help with ripening? Uh, it will help speed up the ripening process. Um, will you necessarily get the full um, profile of cannabinoids and terpenes when you speed up that process? Maybe not necessarily, but you will improve it in a shorter um, duration of time. Another uh, key example, um, you know, which is flowers in general, there we had a, a flower display of, you know, cut flowers for sale, and it was the only refrigerator in the area, and people would put their lunch in there, and they put their apples and bananas, and uh, that was extremely frowned upon, because as you mentioned, that ethylene is a gas. Um, it does speed ripen uh, anything. Uh, so you reduce the temperature and, you know, cut flowers to try to slow down the ripening. Well, if you add ethylene, that's going to cause an issue. Now, for the medicinal plants, you know, adding a, you know, a banana there or, you know, spraying with ethylene, anything like that, um, it could help with the overall ripening uh, process, but you're really looking at um, timing it with that plant to also produce those compounds. So just because you're speeding up that, that peach or that nectarine, you know, in the paper bag, it really didn't change anything. It just kind of, you know, started to break down a little bit quicker. So... My recommendation for those that want to speed up that um, process um, that and still return on investment to be relatively high, if they are not adding it, I would recommend keeping your light uh, par very high and then also adding carbon dioxide enrichment there. That definitely will help uh, speed along that process with still kind of getting all of the goodies that the plant will naturally produce without just kind of like producing an artificially quick end product. Okay, that makes sense. Let's move on to humic and fulvic acids. I think these are very underrated. I know um, chelation comes to mind when, when you talk about humic and fulvic acids. Can you talk to us about humic and fulvic acids? Sure. So you know, basically, humic and fulvic, I'm kind of um, going to talk about them kind of one in the same. They are slightly different, um, but they basically, they're a breakdown of prehistoric deposits. So if you've ever used a true humic or folic acid. I know some come in liquid form, but the powdered form is um, kind of like a coal, a very, very fine coal if you haven't used it before. Um, they're kind of sedimentation layers um, and they are ground uh, to a very fine granular type fertilizer. Um, and it is basically really old, old organic matter. Uh, not really, you know, true coal, but kind of gives you that same uh, coal-like consistency and kind of look to it. Um, so again, in my channel, I've got a you know a little bit of a research article looking at some of the production of utilizing some of them because they are typically used as a um, kind of in combination with other things, uh, with nutrient treatments. And um, humic acids uh, can enhance uh, phosphorus fertilization or actually enhance just regular your NPK, your natural your nitrogen, phosphorus, and uh, potassium fertilizers. There, uh, they can you know also potentially have a negative impact on some uh, cannabinoid uh, production. So this is where you've kind of got to look at and balance certain things out. They can help make nutrients more available, which of course is a great thing. Uh, but there can be, they can shift 
uh, metabolisms in plants and potentially cause kind of uh, an impact on these uh, cannabinoids that we we're talking about. So while phosphorus can be, you know, enhanced treatment, it may not have effect on uh, the cannabinoids. They don't think that just necessarily, oh, more nutrients to the plant, well, more of everything. Um, not necessarily um, the case there. Uh, NPK supplementation uh, may have an increased uh, in, in the flowers, uh, but can you know impact other things? Can impact you know some of your other cannabinoid uh, production there. So this is where I say, you know, scientific studies are what's important. And what I try to do again in my channel is try to take some of these complex studies because I know they're not everyone's great bedtime read, and, and try to break them down to the simplicities. You know, you may understand all the specific uh, plant signaling interactions in there, uh, but just what are some of the bigger pictures? And what I think it really makes some people think about is, you know, some practices that they just hear people do and just assume um, they're making, you know, potentially incorrect connections, as I said, with that. Great, more nutrients, plant available, perfect. You know, that's gonna be exactly what the plants need. I can use less fertilizers. Well, everything in moderation on there, because you can also have an impact on other things. It may not be, you know, what you necessarily may have thought of. Um, you know, you can get a reduction in some of those uh, final end products there because, quote, you're not stressing the plant out. You know, to go back to our previous conversation where if you make it too easy for the plant, well, the plant's going to grow just fine, you know, and perfect. And it's going to think, I don't need to produce those secondary compounds because I'm in a perfect environment. Um, so those levels of stress, um, you know, are key. Um, there, so I don't I don't mind using uh, humic and fulvic acids. They um, are used a lot in fertilizers and great for um, you know high stress nutrient uh, applications. But just watch the amount that you're adding. More is not necessarily better, even though they'll often say you can add as much as you want. You know, humic acid isn't going to completely you know growing in a pH of two or anything like that. Um, but it is just something worth consideration that yes, you can incorporate a lot of products. Do come with it incorporated. Uh, but just watch the amount that you add because more is not necessarily better in this case. Well said. Let's get into flushing. Controversial topic. You have uh, several videos on flushing. What's your overall stance on it and what's the best way to go about it? So I guess the most important part with flushing um, in general, and if you type, you know, properly, how to properly flush on my channel, um, I found a great um, thesis related to irrigation um, events, a doctoral dissertation. And, you know, it goes through and it really provides a great kind of breakdown here of some options that they chose and why you would flush. So first off, I guess flushing in general, you know, kind of what is it? It's typically done at the end of a flowering cycle to kind of flush away, and that's where it gets its name, the root zone of a nutrients. Because if you overpack the root zone with nutrients and salts, um, that can have a negative impact on, you know, flavors and aromas. You can reduce those, you know, aromatic compounds by salts. And a lot of growers will tell me, well, you know, I'd stay away. I look, make sure there's not a lot of salt, in, you know, in any fertilizer I'm using. Well, from a plant standpoint, a botanical standpoint, a chemical standpoint, every nutrient is basically a salt. Um, that's how they're plant available. You know, we're not fertilizing with pure iron. We don't take, you know, an iron nail and go through and file it down and, you know, add iron filings. Um, that's really not going to be plant available. So we're getting a lot of these compounds, you know, not just straight nitrogen that's in the air. We're all breathing. So why do they need nitrogen? Well, it needs to be in, you know, our nitrates, our ammonia, things like that are plant available. And those fall into classification of salts. So just because it's not sodium chloride doesn't mean necessarily that it's not um, a salt. So they went through and they had controlled um, treatments. They did mild stress. They did moderate stress. And they just started to look at, you know, dry matter. You know, what? just a nice comparison um, there. And in any graph you're looking at, uh, be mindful that you might see letters above these different bars. And for the statisticians that, you know, they can get into the details. But for the, the lay person, just understand that if the letter is the same, even if one bar is higher than the other bar, if the letters are the same, they're basically the same. There's the variability means that they're basically the same thing, or they're statistically the same, I guess I should say. Um, so we see all these bars of high and low, look at all these differences. Well, the p-value, the letters are, are the same, then it's basically uh, the same thing. So what the, you know, what the, the general kind of summary really is that there really is not any one method of flushing a plant. There's not just that one way um, that this is how you flush, and if you're not doing it this way, then you're wrong. 
Um, and a lot of what, why, like, why all this variability? You know, I hear about everyone doing it. Well, it also comes down to what media you're growing in. Are you growing in a soilless media? Are you growing in a rock wool media? Are you growing in an aeroponic um, media um, there? You know, that's really where a lot of this variability um, does come in. How old are your plants? You know, what are you fertilizing with? Are you fertilizing with more organic fertilizers with or more chemically based? Uh, for the organic growers, organic based nutrients, you might have to flush for longer. Those organic nutrients take longer to break down. Those chemical-based um, nutrients, which chemical is not bad, and a lot of people think chemical bad, organic good, not necessarily always the case. Um, those chemical fertilizers, they're going to flush much closer to their harvest time because you're going to be able to rid of those uh, nutrients much quicker. And no one's really studied the exact, like, you know, chemistry behind all the different flushings based on all the medias or to get into some of the details, the CEC or cation exchange capacity that plays into it. Um, remember, just that goal is to reduce those nutrients in um, the root zone. You kind of want that plant as a stress to pull any last availability, break down those nutrients, produce those high aromas, produce those high aromatic um, compounds, and avoid some of the salt contamination, which can cause that. Now, another variable to the aspect, you know, not to make people think I'm never going to flush again because there's too much variables, but consider the water you're flushing with. Consider the pH, the EC, or parts per million um, of that water. You know, the purer and more pH neutral, the better. Um, because if you have a well water that has a lot of just natural calcium or magnesium deposits in there, a lot of lime in that water, you think you're flushing, oh, I'm flushing with just pure water. Well, just because you didn't add nutrients, is it really pure water? So you want to consider that um, as well. And when you're flushing, like, am I flushing too early, too much, too little? I will say that if you're starting to see yellowing of the lower portion of the plant, nitrogen typically is that first nutrient that's flushed away. So if your lower leaves are starting to turn yellow when you're flushing, you're probably just flushing just a little bit too much because you're reducing that nitrogen, you're flushing that out, um, and that'll be the first nutrient to go. And that's kind of like a grower's warning sign that, hey, my lower leaves are turning a little lighter green, a little yellowish. That could be a sign you're a little aggressive um, on your flushing. And timing is very important. You know, that's why keeping notes, keeping logs, very important um, in the sense of depends what media you're growing with. If you're growing a soil base, if you're an outdoor grower, you'll be flushing for a lot longer than someone who's hydroponic to kind of give you both ends or extremes of the spectrum there. Hydroponics, if you lose that nutrient, the plant's going to be devoid of it. Very quick turnaround time. Soil, high buffering capacity, going to take a lot longer to kind of go through and um, flush those nutrients um, free from there. And that's really what comes down to knowing your substrate using clay pebbles, also very short duration um, of time there. So key part is for any grower looking at trying this, if I hopefully haven't scared them away, you take a um, reading of the water going in, you take a parts per million or an EC or TDS, whatever unit you're using, and then you flush that till the water comes out of the container and you capture that water and you test that water and you see uh, what nutrient levels uh, are at initially, and then what they're at after five minutes of flushing. And did you reduce that part per million? Did you reduce that EC um, levels down? That's a good sign that you are removing those nutrients from that root zone. And that's again, goes to your indoor and outdoor um, people, just you're gonna have to flush for a different duration and also based on the substrate that you are utilizing. Even if you don't flush, I know there's a lot of folks that don't flush, that don't believe in flushing. They feed all the way up until the end, or they will just simply stop feeding like a week before, two weeks before. Some people call that leaching as well. Even if you feed up all the way till the end, this is an annual plant, at least the medicinal plants that most of the people are growing that are listening to this podcast is an annual plant. And there's going to be a natural senescence that happens, right? So the, the leaves are going to fade no matter if you feed all the way up until the end or not, right? Now it could be it's genetic variability. Some will stay green for longer than others. But eventually, if you push that plant long enough, it's going to senescence. The, the, the leaves will fade. And if they are green all the way to the end, you're probably over fertilizing. As a side note, I can usually tell a cornfield, of course, guys tell in the end, if you're driving down an area, see a cornfield, and right before they harvest, if that plant is entirely green, they over-fertilize. That bottom leaves, as you're saying, should be starting to senesce, should be starting to yellow, should be starting to lose their vibrance of green, because most growers I know aren't selling the leaves, they're selling the other products, and that's where you want those nutrients to ultimately go to, and a little senescence at the end is a sign you hit the nutrients just right. 
So after you harvest the plant, next up is the drying process, which I wanted to get into. Can you talk to us about some of the best practices for the drying process? So first off, it's really after you harvest, you're kind of looking at those environmental conditions you're putting that final product in. And in general, 60% humidity, 60 degrees Fahrenheit, that's kind of like the target um, temperature and humidity to go for. Uh, but there are other factors uh, to consider. Air circulation um, is one. Maintaining good air circulation in any you know, dry cure room is definitely um, important. Um, you know, Mixing the air vertically as well as horizontally. And that doesn't mean a fan blowing right on all the leaves, you know, for 100% of the time, just moving that air. Uh, just be mindful of the environment. You walk in there, a little breeze is okay to feel. Um, you know, not like speed drying, but just movement um, of air. And that's really important through the whole process, but especially early on. When plants are going to wick a lot of moisture early on, you want to be mindful of ensuring that you have control over that. When you're getting that moisture in there, that's also potentially going to impact your temperature or your uh, means of controlling temperature, I guess I should say. And the general range is, you know, 60 to 70 degrees. We definitely don't want to be going much over 70. As we said, those terpenes, you don't want to break them down in the drying process. Um, some grocery as low as 58 to 62 Fahrenheit being ideal. Um, you know, that I would just say to make it easy, 60, 60, 60% humidity, 60 degrees Fahrenheit, good target. But if you're plus or minus a couple degrees, don't automatically freak out. That general range is a key for temperature. Net humidity, some growers, you know, target a little lower. That 55 to 65 is, again, that general range um, there. Um, and it's important to maintain that particularly early on when plants are going to be wicking a lot of that moisture. Um, and humidity, that is humidity that we're talking here about that end process. If you're early on, on the clone or seedling, you know, you're looking at humidity levels 80, 90, 100%. Um, so this is not a moisture content or humidity level you want to maintain throughout the entire grow cycle of the plant. We're specifically talking that end part because growers are here, oh yeah, I'm only concerned about the end product. If that 60 to 60% is my target, I want that plant to be at peak performance of 60% the entire time. And that is not the case. Um, you want to reduce that humidity ideally as the plant grows, um, because there are advantages to having some uh, moisture, um, in the air earlier, um, in the in the uh, plant cycle there. So um, lighting is another important consideration. Um, it should be dried in a dark environment, but this doesn't mean like absolutely no light. Um, ideally, yes, no light, but if you have to go into the room or do something, you don't need like a little candle light to be kind of like going through the room. You can turn um, a light on. I would um, not recommend any of your grow lights. You know, you don't want super bright lights, uh, but your regular you know, shop lights are perfectly fine. You don't have to stumble through the dark um, to go get whatever you need. Just try to keep it as minimal um, as possible in intensity and as minimal as possible in duration um, as well. And with all these conditions that I've talked about here, you know, the even air circulation, the 60 degrees Fahrenheit temperature, the moisture content around 60%, the minimum light, you want to keep those consistent through the entire dry process and cure process. And you're looking at one to two weeks for this process. And a lot of the times uh, growers' um, environmental control systems will struggle early on, as I mentioned. They first cut everything, they throw it all in the room, and they can't control the humidity because there's just so much initial moisture released. So you definitely want to be making sure that you're oversizing your equipment, you're checking your equipment. If you have a dehumidifier, you are emptying that because usually when they fill up with, with um, water, they'll automatically shut down. If you're in an area that's really dry, you might be adding humidity. Um, it's always the fun part of seeing growers be experts in one area and then get hired by a firm somewhere else in a different geographic area and really struggling. Um, sadly, that was the case from some growers that came from a very dry environment to um, the Northeast in particular, where there's a lot of humidity in the Northeast and there's not a lot in kind of the Rocky Mountain region. Um, and those growers that were experts where they were growing and that's why they were hired really look like newbies because of the change or shift in that environment. So knowing, do you need a dehumidifier or do you need a humidifier? I don't care what you need. Sometimes you need both. Maintain that 60%. That's really the cure. Um, that's really the, the focus of that dry and cure um, temperature, um, temperature and humidity to focus on. Whether you need to add or subtract, that's based on your environment. So why do you maintain this? Well, as we talked about earlier, we're trying to maintain all that work we did for those cannabinoids and those terpenes. We're really trying to maintain those at the highest level uh, within the plant. You dry them improperly and cure them improperly. 
you're further breaking down those components that you put all that effort into. And if you're adding high heat, well, you're destroying them there um, as well. So you're trying to just maximize every portion of the process, starting with the plant to maximize the production. Once you cut that off the plant, there's your 100%. You can only go down from there. And your goal as a uh, professional grower, drying and curing, is really to reduce the amount of percentage that you might be losing um, there. And then as always, you should be sending a sample out to get tested so you have something to show potential consumers there. Um, and that's really a great way to kind of, you know, prove what's in, what the plant actually took up and good for the grower to know, hey, what what is, what kind of cultivar, what, you know, what is this kind of producing as far as a terpene profile? Good for you to know, good for potential consumers to know as well. Now, after the drying process comes curing, can you talk to us about some of the best practices there? So there's, you know, there's no, again, no one, you know, kind of proper uh, method. Uh, a lot of the environmental controls, that kind of end process will be very similar. Uh, a lot of people grow for that, you know, 62% humidity is kind of like the ideal. Um, most growers growing in some form of, I'll call it a sealed container um, type for um, in that final curing process. And when you hear container, a lot of growers are thinking, well, I want to get, you know, a big five gallon pail. Um, bigger is not always better uh, in this case as well, um, depending on, you know, if you're large scale, sure, five gallon containers would be fine. But really, those smaller, uh, more controlled um, environments might be a little bit um, better. The chosen container, you know, just as, you know, the gold standard, looking at usually wide mouth mason jars, usually about 32 ounce jar. That's kind of the standard because you're not packing the jar, of course. You want to leave about 25, about a quarter uh, percent airspace. I love that breathing process to occur. You want to like pack um, everything in there. And I always stress the wide mouth. You can get away with the smaller, but it's just easier to kind of like when you put your hand in there, that wide mouth does just make it so much easier. Um, and the reason why you leave that airspace is so you can kind of like move things around. That doesn't mean you kind of go up to it and like, like the, the I always say like the power ball where you're kind of like shaking everything up and bouncing everything around like crazy, but just, you know, don't want the um, end product to develop, you know, flat spots. You kind of want to keep that area appearance. You don't want to get two things close together because what that's going to do is trap potential humidity in there. Um, so you just move them around a little bit. Now that curing process I mentioned before, dark place is uh, important. Now what a lot of growers take this to mean is that I need a light block container. If you have an option for that, all the better. But by simply putting them in a dark room with minimal amount of lights, that accomplishes the exact same thing and still allows you to go through and inspect the final product. Now, when I, that inspection is important. You don't want to set it and forget it. Like, oh, it was 62%. I sealed them up. I put them in the room and see you in two months. Uh, you do want to kind of just be checking that. Uh, make sure that the room is maintaining the conditions. Make sure there is no mold developing. Uh, make sure there is kind of nothing is, quote, changing. You're kind of checking that. Um, so you have that kind of routine just to check on things. A lot of growers, too, in the screen process, particularly early on, we'll call it what's called burping the containers. This is basically like opening the lid, cracking the lid, just kind of like just allow any buildup of anything to kind of be released there. Allow some moisture potentially to escape, allow oxygen to kind of replenish in um, there. Any follow odors that you're noticing during this stage is a sign mold might be developing even if you don't see it. You might want to put those in a separate um, location there. And this burping will be done more frequently early on as those plants kind of settle in. It'll be done less and less and less frequently. Um, to maintain that humidity, a lot of people are throwing uh, humidity control packs in there. Again, that target 60 to 65% uh, percent is really that, that target. That first week, some people might burp you know, twice daily. Um, weeks two to three and beyond, you're kind of cutting down to once a week every or every other day, to every third day to once a week, um, kind of so on and so forth there. And you'll be able to tell based on the aromas. End of curing, two to three weeks. Really don't go much beyond uh, eight weeks. If you're still curing after eight weeks, you're doing something wrong. After that step, you're kind of at the final uh, storage, if you will, of that end product there. Very detailed answer. I think a lot of your answers here were, were very detailed and uh, straight to the point. And like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, that's what uh, I think a lot of people like about your style of, of teaching there. Succinct and to the point. If you can say it in three words, say it in three. Don't give me 30. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so wrapping things up, how can the listeners find you and what do you have upcoming in the future? So I would say uh, Debaco University uh, on YouTube would be a great way um, to review some of this content, search the channel. Um, I do have different, um, you know, uh, playlists there. So uh, 
I will say that I also uh, teach a forensic science course. So if you're watching some of my videos and all of a sudden five stages of body decay come up, which is, I don't know why it gets frequently recommended. That is okay. That is one of my videos. If it's of interest to you, watch it. Great. Um, but people wonder like, uh, how do we go from plants to this? Uh, it is also on the, the channel there. Uh, encourage if you like it, you know, try to, um, you can send comments in. I try to respond uh, to every comment uh, that I can. There's over a thousand videos on the channel. So I'm sure you'll find uh, something of interest to you. Encourage others to subscribe. I've been very fortunate with uh, a great community here sharing out the channel. So if you know a new grower struggling, to tell them about the channel, reach out to it, um, you know, help them out. I try to touch on everything from basics of growing to some more advanced level um, items. So new growers, old growers, everyone can hopefully um, learn something. I've got a couple more kind of videos um, planned. Have been updating recently because I do teach um, at the University of Connecticut, running a, a course, two courses there, New York Botanical Gardens, as well as Florida Gulf Coast University. So you're talking about different environments, growing different environments. Those are, one gets snow and one's uh, concerned that there's a crocodile that's gonna eat the, um, you know, the birds outside uh, their bird feeder. So it's a great little contrast there on the Eastman Seaboard there of the United States. So uh, other ways you can more uh, professionally, you know, potentially take one of my uh, courses going forward. Uh, but if not, hopefully you enjoy what you find on the channel. Uh, like, subscribe, or at least subscribe, and uh, be sure to tell others about the channel. It's much appreciated. Well, I'll definitely have a link to Matt's channel down in the description section below. And then if you're listening on one of the podcast platforms, just search for him. You'll find him on YouTube. If you enjoyed this episode, click that thumbs up button. Try to get as many thumbs up as possible. That helps with the YouTube algorithm in particular. Subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Every single weekend, I'm releasing a new Garden Talk podcast episode. And I would love for you to tune into future episodes. Matt, this has been awesome. This has been very insightful for me. We definitely dipped our toes into some of the science behind the plant which is always good it's always uh, i'm always learning when it comes to that and i know my audience is right there learning with me and you've shared quite a bit of value for me and for them so thank you so much for your time today and i hope you enjoy the rest of your day thank you and great to be a part of it glad i can share some talks plant science with uh, some interested people